and welcome back to The Long Short. I'm your host, Tom Kyo, and I'm delighted to be joined again by my co-host, Drew Nichol. Drew, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. It is great to be back. And I, w- I was listening to some of the recent episodes on my flight home, and it really does sound like I missed out on some great conversations, which I'm quite upset by, but I'm very happy to be back now. And today's episode focuses on an area of alternative investments that is essential for the success of the industry, but often doesn't get the attention it deserves. And that's the relationship between fund managers and their investors. So, AIMA, in partnership with RSM, has recently published a new report filled with some really fascinating data points that shed some much-needed light on their relationship. The report is called InThink, How Hedge Funds Achieve Alignment with Investors to Foster Long-Term Strategic Partnerships. And it's the third in a series of reports looking into this topic that we've done with RSM. So the report can also offer some insights on how the main features of the GPLP dynamic, meaning fund managers and investors, has changed since we last published the report in 2019. To discuss the latest findings, we are delighted to be joined by Scott Mackey, a partner at RSM specialising in financial services and investment fund industry. Scott, you are very welcome to The Longshore. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Tom. Um, been a little while since we've, uh, we've, we've spoken about this, uh, this topic, 2019, but uh, looking forward to a good conversation. Before we dive too deep into the report, Tom, you led on this for AIMA. So could you just take us through some of the key findings just to help set the scene? Yeah, sure, Drew. Um, as, as you've both mentioned, this is the third in a series of studies that uh, we've done, which examines that GPLP relationship that exists among hedge funds. A um, couple of thanks. First of all, uh, you know, we collaborated and we will hear the views of our colleague uh, Scott in a few moments, but we also collaborated with you know, our research committee, our global research committee, uh, which comprises of alternative investment fund managers, both large and small, across a variety of strategies, including traditional hedge fund strategies and private credit. And we also collaborated with our global investor board, which accounts for some of the world's largest allocators to hedge funds. And so we'd like to thank them all for their dedication and valuable insights on this research. In total, we surveyed 138 hedge fund managers globally and they accounted for just over 700 billion in assets under management. And separately, we surveyed 35 institutional investors. Moving to the key takeaways of the report, uh, Drew, um, I'd list three really. Um, The first of these is what we describe in the report as the emergence of the modern fee model. So after years of downward pressure on fees, many investors and fund managers have settled on a new fee model that emphasizes rewarding fund managers that can consistently deliver strong performance, albeit with more stringent hurdles to clear. And managers have then in turn had to innovate how they charge fees, manage expenses using new product structures and share classes. Um, and related to fees, of course, is the environment around managing a hedge fund business, business, and that's become more costly. That's associated with higher costs, firms becoming more digitized, the pace of regulatory and compliance change, a relentless pace that you know we're experiencing, and the costs associated as well with meeting the war on talent. Um, and, and the consequence of that then is how managers are working with investors in terms of managing their expense base. Um, And another key point that comes out of the paper is 
what we see is arguably the most important feature of the GPLP relationship is what we describe as skin in the game, which is essentially in the principles of the fund investing their own personal capital into their fund, which surprisingly to us, when we first examined that relationship in hedge funds, we saw as being somewhat unique to hedge funds. And the results of this year's study reasserts the definitive form of alignment between the manager and investor going beyond the fund principle to broader skin in the game. And finally, we witness more innovation on the part of fund managers to win and retain investors with new fund structures, the launch of new products. And specifically, we point to the increasing popularity of co-investment products and how that's providing an ideal vehicle, we think, for aligning interests. And relationships are being further deepened as well through strategic knowledge sharing and sophisticated conversations around complex issues which incorporate ESG and responsible investment. Um, so they're my three key takeaways, Drew. Thanks, Tom. So, yeah, an extremely meaty report, and I'm keen to just jump into all of that. But we probably should take the headline issue first, which is, of course, fees. So turning to you now, Scott, as Tom mentioned, we've sort of coined the phrase the modern fee model to describe what we were defining as a model that is more flexible and offers a greater emphasis on the performance fee as opposed to the management fee, meaning that managers are only rewarded when they have delivered for investors. So just taking this back to the headline and, and how this aligns interests, could you just speak to what this does to have a, a performance fee led model and, and how it also allows a situation where some managers are able to negotiate slightly higher fees when they can demonstrate very reliable performance. Yeah, thanks, Drew. Obviously, you know, the concept of a performance fee is not new in and of itself. You know, performance fees have been around for you know, uh, decades at, at this point, you know, particularly in the hedge fund model. Um, but I think what we have been seeing, and I think particularly you know, we've been seeing around you know, in the US, is that managers are moving away from you know, the more rigid 2% administrative fee or management fee, 20% performance fee model, and, and coming up with some more creative solutions that do promote uh, greater alignment uh, between the LPs and the, and the GPs of a fund. So some of the examples that, that I've seen, uh, as you alluded to, are you know, higher performance fees for outsized returns. So the performance fee model may be set uh, lower, you know, for, uh, for 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 lower or more modest returns, you know, somewhere below the twenty percent model. But for outsized returns, you know, you know, going above twenty percent um, is fairly common, up to twenty five, uh, thirty, and even thirty five percent. You know, one of the other examples that I, I think we've seen in terms of um, how performance fees have been structured is is pairing different performance fees with different management fee structures. So a fund may get you know, split up into, into, into different tranches uh, and the investors have the option of coming in with different fee uh, models you know, based on, you know, on how they sign up for the fund. So for example, they may choose to have a, a more stable management fee and a lower performance fee or a relatively uh, modest uh, management fee or even a 0% management fee in exchange for for a 100% performance fee model for the manager. And the debate regarding how hedge fund managers pay for their expenses has also intensified. The results of our study found that the practice of passing through expenses is becoming more common. Scott, 
Would you agree with that? And how has the use of pass-through then changed over the past number of years? I, I would say the answer, it, it depends. Uh, you know, th- there's always been flexibility, you know, within uh, investor agreements and subscription agreements, I, I think, for uh, GPs to pass discrete fees on uh, to investors. Um, but that said, you know, I think going back, you know, a, a decade or, or even longer, you know, the, the largest fee and the most, you know, predominant fee that you would see, um, you know, in the in the financial statements for a uh, for a hedge fund would be management fees. Um, you know, I, I do think there has been some creep uh, in terms of, you know, some very discrete fees that, you know, I, I think very arguable that they, they directly benefit the fund uh, but, and are passed on to the fund. Uh, and as you said, ultimately, those are passed on to the investors. Um, however, there, there are some kinds of fees and, and some types of fees that I think that you know, are passed on that were traditionally covered under that management fee um, arrangement. So, for example, uh, bookkeeping, record keeping fees, uh, you, know, bef- you know, before this you know, prevalence of, of outsourcing um, the record keeping and accounting uh, to fund administrators, you know, most of that that function was performed in house, uh, and the costs were borne by the manager, and it was covered by the management fee. You know, those uh, those same costs are, are now, or those same activities are now oftentimes outsourced to a third party administrator. You know, those you know very reasonably those uh, firms um, you know invest very heavily in technology, people, and processes to perform that function, um, and that fee is you know it's a discrete fee. And it is quite often recorded and passed on in the uh, you know, to the fund. However, not necessarily always seeing the the corresponding decrease in in management fees to reflect that. So, if you will, you're you're taking some fees out of the the manager's um, you know responsibility or the manager's purview, uh, creating a direct fee and and passing it onto the fund. And I guess the point that we make in the paper on pass through is that this is indicative of the environment being coming a lot more costly. Uh, we talk about that relentless pace of regulatory and compliance change, the higher costs associated with firms becoming more digitized and the increasing costs around the war on talent. Yeah, and, and I think another component that's uh, worthy of consideration for, for costs um, for managers and, and how those are ultimately uh, passed on to a, a fund. So during periods of sustained performance, like we've had over the, the last 10 years, for example, um, you know, but during that period, costs have also been increasing pretty significantly for managers. Um, you know, and a, a significant part of that is is sourcing talent, uh, talent that's not necessarily coming from traditional areas of the asset management space. So, uh, asset managers are, are now having to uh, find technologists, uh, data scientists, uh, people who are able to create uh, AI programs. Um, they, they, we need people who are. Um, uh, savvy and, and fluent and can understand and navigate through cryptocurrency um, uh, requirements. All, the, all these things increase costs. So as as managers are, are keeping pace with the industry, they're developing products, they're offering you know uh, products that their that their investors uh, require. The high watermark of their cost costs are, are most likely going up, and you couple that with inflation, they're, they're definitely going up. You know, then you get to a, an inflection point like now, um, where you know assets are, are decreasing, the asset values are going down, uh, performance is stagnating or, or going down in in many cases. So, while costs are up, 
revenues for managers are, are coming down, either through lower performance fees or uh, lower management fees, you know, coming from a base level of AUM. So I think we're at an interesting point here, an interesting inflection point where we're going to see, you know, maybe another change to, to cost models moving forward. But added to that, Scott, is what has happened across the industry is that we've had, by and large, performance being better over the last couple of years. So therefore, it feels like managers um, are, are more comfortable with making that ask in terms of being compensated better. Um, and we talk about that partial pass-through becoming more popular um, and the push you know, by investors to cut fees and further, further aggravated by rising industry costs has seen some managers then push on a wider variety of costs onto the fund. And the two models for this then are the pass-through model, a partial pass-through and the full pass-through. And what we're saying is that there's some parts of the industry are also now charging full pass-through. Um, and that can be, you know, as much as three to four times the historical 2% management fee. Um, and then everyone else as that environment has become more costly they're starting to push through expenses albeit they're capped yeah and um, that's the change that we've seen from um, when we took this research in 2019 um, to you know research that we're reporting on this year uh, many firms scott are also turning to technology such as automation tools or are having a greater reliance on outsourcing to achieve cost savings. What are you seeing with regards to this development? Uh, yeah, certainly I think it's it's been a very consistent theme and and not just in the three years since we last spoke, but you know, this has really been you know, over the last dec- decade or even f- 15 years, you know, the the trend to outsourcing, you know, components of the back office or middle office uh, of a fund manager um, you know, ha- has been very strong. Um, and I and I think there there are real reasons for that that are that are not just cost related, you know. One is the um, you know sourcing of talent and the sourcing of resources that are required to run a back office. I, you know, that is a real um, uh, undertaking uh, in itself. The cost of developing and uh, maintaining technology for what is you know very much in you know for for outsource record keeping uh, a very much. Um, you know, non-core function for a for an asset manager, um, that those are very real costs, and so the ability to I think move those um, move those uh, costs out uh, and move those functions out and not have to manage them in house, you know, is is a great benefit uh, to a lot of managers, and it, and it makes a lot of sense. And you know, we've been seeing that trend, and I, and I you know expect that to continue. In terms of investing into technology that's retained in house, I think that. That's also very much um, a trend that we've seen uh, a lot, and that's you know that's not just um, that's just not isolated to the investment management industry. That that is a trend. Automation has been a trend across you know business business development over you know a very strong trend for the last ten years, um, and you know and all businesses are doing it, and um, you know particularly when you're in an industry that you know you. You're, you're regulated. You you have to you know there there is a high precision in how you have to um, in your activities and and how you uh, have to conduct your business. You know automation, the ability to cut cut back on error, increase accuracy, uh, and also you know manage less people. You know has been a, a, a key component for many investment managers. 
AMA's Next Generation Manager Forum, now in its 10th year, returns to London on Tuesday the 16th of May. The forum provides a platform for the exchange of ideas and the development of peer networking for senior individuals at alternative asset management businesses managing up to $500 million in hedge and private credit assets. Throughout the afternoon, speakers will discuss Next Generation Managers 10 years on, the war for talent, how to acquire and keep it, ESG implementation and non-negotiables, and investor relations, retention and maintenance. Register today to learn more from the Stellar Speaker lineup and engage and network with colleagues both old and new. We look forward to welcoming you. And of course, it's all not one way in the sense of uh, fund managers being able to uh, maybe let go of some costs and, and increase fees, obviously, assuming that they are performing ultimately for their investors. Investors are in themselves demanding something more as part of this new dynamic. And in the first instance, what the data seems to suggest is that greater transparency is at the core of what they are asking for. So just just to put that to you then in the sense of transparency can mean many things to many people. But when we spoke to both managers and investors, uh, when we were going through the data and, and interrogating it a little bit, it, it did mean a lot in the sense of it could mean fees, it could mean greater insight into the underlying portfolio. But the uh, co- common denominator was that it, ha- it had to improve and it had improved a lot since 2019, but there potentially was still um, further headroom there. And the, the other element that I found particularly interesting was that previously, if you were a big ticket investor, then you had greater sway when it came to demanding certain transparency in, in whatever aspect that that uh, was most important to you. But now the overall threshold for what is considered high levels of transparency can be demanded by all investors or, or, or low, smaller ticket investors. Could you just uh, talk about sort of in, in your experience how that trend has developed and, and if we can expect that to continue to develop? Yeah, sure. I mean, and look, I think, you know, there's always been a healthy tension uh, between investors and, and managers when it comes to to transparency, right? I think, you know, both sides understand the advantages and, and disadvantages to each of them um, of, of transparency. Um, I think certainly as it, as it regards to fees uh, and how diff- how fees are charged between different investors, you know, within the same manager, you know, that, that understandably, I, I think, continues to be a, an area where investors are you know, are seeking more transparency um, around fee structures. They're seeking more transparency in you know how the, the costs of uh, running a fund or you know running a portfolio translates to to their costs. And then how how are my fees as one investor differentiated from fees of another investor? You know, from a competitive landscape, you know. That's obviously very interesting to to investors, but you know, for managers, disclosing some of that is is giving away you know somewhat of a, a competitive advantage. Um, on the portfolio side, you know, investors, you know, re, you know, particularly big ticket investors who are managing complex portfolios, they need to they need a transparency as to what how they're managing their risk, how are they allocating their assets, you know, across you know different managers and. And, and where do their risks really lie? So, you know, I think 
transparency around investing, transparency around you know, investing products that are that are being used. We've certainly seen that 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 increased. Um, I wouldn't say it's all been voluntarily. There's been some, you know, pressures from regulators, accounting bodies, uh, auditors. I'd have to say, uh, you know, certainly are part of that mix. Um, but you know, I, there has been a general progression towards greater transparency in, in both those realms, um, and, and I think it's it's been really beneficial for for investors. And Scott, the paper also goes into the the innovation on the part of managers to win and retain investors with launches of new products and as mentioned at the top we talk about the increasing popularity of co-investment not just in private markets but we're also seeing that and we have examples of it in public markets as well Um, what can you tell us about co-investment to the extent that that is um is it an emerging trend or is it is is it more of a permanent shift now on the part of managers and investors working together Certainly, a very strong trend. Uh, I'm not not sure I'm, I'm, I would categorize it as a permanent trend. It's hard to say anything is is permanent in in this industry where you know you're working in such a fluid environment and and actions that you take as a manager to to retain um, a competitive edge you know are going to change over time. Um, you know, I, I certainly see um, you know we've certainly seen a prevalence in co-invest vehicles. Um, and, and I think that's driven by, you know, a few factors. You know, one is certainly promoting a, alignment and creating new options for your investors. I think particularly your, you know, the larger big ticket investors, you know, to, to gain more exposure to, a, to certain positions that, uh, that as a manager, you know, they may they find uh, particularly appealing. I think another uh, appealing aspect for, for investors, you know, when it comes to co-invest vehicles it is you know, becoming less correlated with markets and taking on greater positions, you know, with managers that they, you know, they trust, they have a great track record with, um, but it's becoming, it's becoming harder and harder to beat the market. And so in, in some instances, instances becoming um, less diversified uh, and less correlated, you know, may be seen as a way to achieve that. I just want to pull together a few of the themes that we, we've raised at this point, because it, there was something that struck me in the report, which was this reference to how the overall relationship was described as, uh, I believe by a fund manager interviewed, as being much more of a, a strategic partnership than it may have been considered in, in, in prior years. And from what I'm hearing, that sort of comes through in especially you you reference co-investment there but there was also this idea of a uh, greater demand for knowledge sharing and also a desire by both parties to well especially on the manager side to have uh, fees locked into the fund for a longer period so these are this is not some short-term relationship this is something that will hopefully go on as long as the manager continues to perform and it, it seems like the depth of the overall relationship has developed a lot compared to prior years. Is that a fair, accurate? Is was that an accurate description? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think, you know, look, going back and, and looking at the history of how this has evolved is, you know, we had hedge fund managers who, you, you know, while not new in the the early two thousands, you know, were still, I think, a um, a relative unknown to a large. Uh, portion of the investing community, um, 
you know, we have the the events of um, you know the, the global financial crisis and um, and the, and uh, those you know catastrophic economic events that that occurred you know over a decade ago. Now, it very much changed the landscape, I think, as to how um, hedge funds and alternative managers you know had to interact with their with their clients. You know, there were no longer were you lucky enough to to get into a, a hedge fund. You know, the managers. I think had to pivot to to really being able to demonstrate long term value to be able to create that sticky ticket, and I think that's what that's what we're seeing come through in in the paper. You know, some of the activities that are not just around investment management, but around you know how how GPs and LPs interact. Um, you know, how would they come to an arrangement that's mutually beneficial for both of them? You know, I think we're certainly seeing that you know those aspects of a uh, a strategic relationship, a long-term relationship, you know, you know, developing. And, and so finally then, no uh, topic, uh, uh, no conversation around this topic would be complete without a question uh, to do with ESG, which, which is uh, interrogated somewhat in the report. And I, I think with some quite interesting results, actually, because it seemed to indicate that there was some disparity in the embrace of ESG amongst hedge funds, despite how ubiquitous a topic it is, uh, especially if you look at the event circuit these days. But could I just just put it to you in the, in the broadest sense, sort of where do you see us at in, in the journey of, of ESG adoption? And uh, was there anything that jumped out to you from the data in this aspect of the report? So are you referring, Drew, to, you know, maybe a lower than expected uh, response rate in terms of ESG being a, a critical or a core part of the business? Well, exactly. It's, it's, it's interesting, really, because, you know, again, just if you were someone who just glanced at the headlines or just, uh, you know, had a passing uh, understanding of the industry or, you know, broader financial services, you might think that ESG was you know, everywhere all of the time. And actually what the data suggests is that there is a slightly more nuanced conversation going on about where ESG is applicable and to what extent ESG at any cost is in fact not the top priority for some hedge fund managers insofar as it is not being pushed or demanded of them by their investors. And and that certainly jumped out to me. Yeah, and, and look, I think, you know, that the lack of enthusiastic response around that, I think, may be skewed a little bit by my my brethren here in the in the US. Um, you know, the US investment management um, industry, and I think broadly, just in general, is not as advanced when it comes to ESG as some other jurisdictions. Um, you know, certainly, it's on the horizon, and you know, there are there are regulations that are coming into effect. They're coming into effect. In the short term, but they're still not as extensive as they are in, in Europe, for example. But I think, you know, specifically speaking to some of those responses, and and you're know, bringing it back to the US, there there is already a, a robust uh, market in the investment management space here for ESG products, and and there are specialized managers who you know who cater for that um, and and offer um, you know ESG or, or socially responsible investing models, um, and you know, and it leaves some of the other managers who, you know, somewhat unencumbered to, you know, to, um, you know, leave that component of the, the, the management space, you know, to those managers. There's also, I think, the factor that, you know, this 
as I said, there, there, there are regulations coming and some of them are coming into effect in, in the near term. And I think there is a little bit of apprehension here about what it's going to take to, to actually implement those uh, those requirements and, and really embrace the concept of ESG. I think it's it's very easy to speak about it and to, you know, and to, to speak a, a good game, if you will, about, you know, being pro ESG. But when it comes, to, you know, time to actually implement those systems, uh, get the people involved, the right, um, the right resources, the right expertise, the right systems. Yeah, that's actually a large, quite a significant barrier. And and I think you may be seeing that some of that sentiment come through in that response. And so finally, then, was there anything in the report that really jumped out to you and surprised you? I mean, we, we've talked about a huge amount there, and it is a very meaty report. And, and I should say, for, for those listening, there is a huge amount of additional detail on each of these topics that we've mentioned. And I really would encourage everybody to give it a read in order to get the, the juicy data points that are all there. But but Scott, is it was other than what we've already discussed, was there anything that really took you back? I, I wouldn't say took, took me aback, but I, you know, when I look at it, and and some of the you know the data that's coming through um, you know skin in the game I, I think was was a concept that you know jumped out at me that you know there there are senior senior members of uh, of fund managers who are being required to to have you know to meet minimum investment levels in their own products uh, as a as a requirement to promote uh, harmony um, you know from my experience in in dealing with investment managers for the last twenty five years. There are very few of them that don't want to have their money in their in their own product. I would say they're all very proud of their own product. They all believe in it, and that's why they're doing it. Um, it's also a very convenient place for them to, um, you know, access great talent to to achieve returns while having the the control and transparency that you would want as an investor. So, you know, I, I perhaps see that one as, um, you, you know. Not such a push, not not such a big lift for, for managers to to have um, have their own money uh, in their funds. But you know, I think in general, the you know the findings and the and the data that coming through in the report are, are pretty much in line with what we're seeing in in practicality. That's a really interesting point, actually, because I think. There, it's difficult to come across a more ringing endorsement of the industry than just how common it is for principals and, and senior employees to have a significant stake in their own fund. And I know if I was an investor, that would be the first thing that I would look for. And they can only be reassuring to see that they believe in their own product. But uh, Tom, actually, I mean, I should put it to you as well. Was there anything that uh, particularly caught your eye? My big surprise was, and when we did the research, um, uh, on on ESG and responsible investment, uh, you know, Scott was saying that he's not that surprised. Well, being from this part of the world, uh, Europe and the UK, everybody talks about ESG and responsible investment, and certainly that felt a big momentum over the last year, two years. And for then half of all of our respondents to say that they didn't have an ESG mandate, that was the biggest surprise to me. But as Scott alluded to, you know, there's I guess there's an incremental approach to incorporating ESG and there are various facets around why you ought to incorporate, but also there are challenges around um, being able to incorporate that. Um, but certainly that was a big surprise to me from coming from this part of the world. Of course, in the US, it's all about DE&I, less so about ESG. I wonder if we do this report three years time when the world has moved on 
um, you know, will, will that data point change? Uh, that, that remains to be seen. Yeah, no, Tom, and just, just to add on to that, and I, you know, I think we all know ESG is coming and I do think that we will see a different response in, in a few years' time. And I know RSM uh, and, I, and many other participants in the industry believe uh, ESG is coming. There's a significant investment in ESG uh, in the US. I, I just feel that it's a little, you know, a slight reluctance, maybe a, maybe a, a lack of acceptance um, of reality at the moment. But, you know, we'll see. We'll, we'll in, it'd be very interesting, I think, to come back in, in three years and, and measure that. Well, I think we're in agreement. That's a strong foundation to... Uh to meet back here again in, in three years' time at least and uh, pick over the bones of the next report. Uh, I think all that's left in the last few minutes is just to thank Scott and, of course, everybody else at RSM who partnered with us on this. As Tom mentioned, there is a huge number of stakeholders involved in getting these reports over the line, including Amos Research Committee and our Global Investor Board, many, many other people that contributed their time to do the survey and answer all our questions in hours and hours of interviews that went into putting this together so uh thank you to all those people if they're listening and scott thank you for joining us on the long short oh uh, thank thank you thank you drew thank you tom and and thank you Emma, for allowing us to participate again Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.